All right, let's pray. As we get ready to go into this uh, week eight of the series on the anointing, I need the anointing. <laughs> I need the anointing to speak. You need the anointing to hear. Um, and thankfully, we've all learned that we already have the anointing within us to, to teach us. So let's, let's agree with that. Let's agree with the truth of the word of God and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word who is within us. It is living and it is active. It is uh, separating soul from spirit. It is judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Father. It is in us and it is, it is breathing and it is speaking to us. So, Lord, I pray that even as I speak, that you would speak through me, that you would show me things. Lord, even as the listeners hear that it would fall on really good soil, Lord, that the soil of all of our hearts would be open and ready to hear what you want to say to us and anoint their ears to hear, God. There is an anointing within them and all of them know the truth according to your word, Father. And so we agree with that word and we... we uh, Declare that we're going to be blessed by what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. All right. Well, we are on a journey. We are taking back Pentecost. That's what we're doing. Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says, The mystery that was hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been made manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And uh, like I said, we've been doing a series on the anointing. And today I want to talk about the anointing, the glory of God. That's the title of my sermon today. We already know the anointing means uh, Christ. Christ is the anointed one. And we have him on the inside of us, which we just read about. And that's why he is our hope of glory. This is week eight as we're going to discover what this really means to us. And we're going to look especially the, the principle that Pentecost was the release of the glory of God for the birthing of the church. You can't actually separate the glory of God from the Holy Spirit. We can't separate the Holy Spirit from the anointing. We can't separate the anointing from the glory of God. So it's this... It's all in one. It's an all in one package. And when we start to talk about the glory of God, we, it reminds us actually of, of Moses, who made a plea to God in Mount Sinai, saying, Please show me your glory in Exodus. So I just want to take a quick look at that to see what led him to actually say that. And this is the lead up for Moses to cry out to God and say, Lord, show me your glory. In, uh, from Exodus 19, we begin to see after the, the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so they'd already been extracted by God. They came into the wilderness of Sinai, the Bible tells us. And at that point, they, Israel then encamped before the mountain of Sinai, and while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him out of the mountain. Could you imagine? You walk up the mountain and suddenly you hear a voice, and it's God calling you out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is very significant, this moment. This is actually the birthing and the beginning of the nation of Israel. Because in Egypt, there had merely been a people gathered together. They'd been 
gathered together in Israel, uh, sorry, in Egypt, under the eye of Pharaoh. But this was the moment where they, after they'd come out of Egypt, and now they're gathered at Mount Sinai, and they are literally about to hear the law given to them. So this is actually the very birthing of the nation of Israel. And, um, and this is how even the Jews would see this. They, they celebrate Pentecost now as remembering that it's the moment that the, the law was given and it was the birthing of them as a nation, as the people of God. See, when the glory of God comes, it is always for a purpose. When the glory of God comes, it will always be for the house of God, for the people of God. So basically, it was about to be a declaring or a declaration who these people are going to be. They will be a treasured possession. They shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if we understand the language of the New Testament, we also recognize that that's how uh, 1 Peter 2.9 describes the people of God now, who is the church. He uses the same language, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So it's echoed basically in the New Testament times. And so getting back to Exodus 19 and verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So he's basically saying to Moses, I'm about to back you up and back up your leadership. So not only has he got the back of the people saying, I'm going to gather you, I am going to instate you as a nation, my glory will lead you and I am going to be your God, you will be my treasured possessions, you shall be a kingdom of priests to me, you will be a holy nation. Not only are the people backed up here, but he's also backing up Moses as the leader. And it's as if he encapsulates and cocoons his entire people with the principle of what he's about to do with them. And we're going to read about the glory of God that comes. And so this is the picture of the formation or the beginnings of what the New Testament calls the ecclesia in the wilderness or the people of God that he called out, that are the called out ones in the wilderness. This is this church in the wilderness, the ecclesia of God. They're being called out and they're being formed. This is the moment as the law is about to be given. And so then we read on and we see how the power of God comes and visits this people because it's always about God's people. Anything and everything that God does is about his people. The glory of God will always come for the birthing of something, for the gathering together of his people. And the amazing thing is that this is literally 50 days, exactly 50 days after Passover that happened in Egypt. This is when the day of Pentecost, the, the feast of Pentecost was about to happen. And on that day, it tells us in the Bible that Mount Sinai experienced this incredible shaking. There was this loud trumpet sound and the glory cloud of God came. And it tells us how he wrote the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. God actually wrote the commandments with his finger. And right after Mount Sinai had shaken and had the glory cloud of God, the craziest thing happened. The, the people got bored waiting for, uh, for Moses to come down the mountain because mountains up, uh, Moses is up there on the mountaintop experiencing the glory of God. They're getting bored down there. They've just literally come out of Egypt. They're very heathen in their, in their thinking. Remember, this is the formation of a nation. So they don't know the laws yet. They don't know the expectations of God yet. They don't know what they're supposed to be be doing. All they've seen is the great miracles that God performed, bringing them out of Egypt. 
But they're a rebellious bunch. They're, the Bible calls them, that God called them a stiff-necked bunch. They, they want to do what they want to do. And so they're, they're, they're pulling on Aaron, who'd been left down there with them, and said that they wanted to worship another god. So they began to form their own golden calf, and that they began to worship. And so God got angry, and then, you know, he, he, God actually tells Moses, who's still up on the mountain, and he says, in verse 10 of chapter 32, he says, Now, therefore, let me alone, he's saying this to Moses, that my wrath may be burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So literally, it's, it reminds me of that scripture, God is always on the lookout. He's always searching. His eyes are searching to and fro throughout the earth to find anyone whose heart is totally his. Why? So that he can show himself strong on their behalf. So he's thinking, well, you know, I pull these people out. I've got them out of Egypt. They've seen the miracles of coming through the Red Sea. And here they are. They can't even wait the 40 days for, for Moses to come down the mountain and to begin to bring the Lord that has already been given up in that mountaintop. So he's telling Moses, listen, this is what's happened. This is what's happened to the people down there. Because remember, God can see everything. So he's saying, let my, let my wrath burn hot against them that I will consume them and I'll make a nation. He still wanted to make a nation because it's still about the people of God. It's still about God being seen here on the earth through his people. So, but he said, look, we'll get rid of them and let's, let's just do it through you. But it's amazing because Moses interceded. What an incredible leader. He curbed God's anger. And then finally Moses came down came down the mountain, he saw what was happening. <laughs> so what does Moses do? He gets angry. He's just told God not to get angry. He comes down, he's got these tablets that have literally just had the finger of God write the law of God, which is establishing. It's like the, the constitution for the nation, handwritten by, he's got a handwritten note from God. He comes down, he sees what's going, and obviously this guy's got a bit of a temper on him as well. At least he didn't kill them. He just smashed the, the tablets onto the ground. And he did it in anger, even though he's just pleaded with God, please don't be angry. He's like, let me at them. And it's hilarious because in verse 19 of 32, he says, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. <laughs> It's like, whoa, this is, this is some fiery leadership here. I mean, there was some crazy leadership going on at that time. When he came down, he says to his brother, to Aaron, he goes, what did the people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And, and Aaron says, oh, you know, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Obviously, this guy, he's hit, uh, you know, the, the, the point of, of fury and rage. And, and Aaron's saying to him, trying to calm him down, you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. I mean, goodness me. These people have just seen God go before them. They've just come out of Egypt with 10 plagues. They've just seen the, the, the Red Sea open up and divide, and, and they've come through. Um, and, and he goes on to say, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And then, so I said to them, this is Aaron speaking, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and here's what he says. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. So I don't know how it happened. 
I just threw it in and out came this calf. But earlier on it says he actually fashioned the calf. So he's a chicken of a leader. He's a, he's a terrible leader. And um, so both pretty much God and Moses had had enough. There's this crazy leadership going on. These people have got no clue what's going on. But it's amazing how God still kept interceding. Uh, sorry, Moses still kept interceding for the people. It's amazing. It's, when you read the story and really sort of slow down enough to assess what was going on, it's incredible to realize the leadership from this man. He didn't give up. He stood in the gap for the house of God. And I, I just think this, this is what God is looking for in leadership nowadays. People who will stand in the gap and keep leading the people of God forward, even in their rebellion. And I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like chucking in, I feel like grinding golden cars, sticking in water, making people drink it. Like seriously, there, sometimes there are things you just want to do, but you, the heart of God, when it's in you, you want to lead the people out of rebellion, out of blindedness and out of this place of not being able to see and be able to bring them into the very presence of God, the glory of God. And so Moses kept that soft heart. He kept that incredibly soft heart and he kept the intercession going and kept in that place of asking God. That's a hard thing for a leader to do because you do, you get tired of people. You get sick of the flesh in people, you get sick of your own fleshly responses to the flesh of people and so you just get sick of everything. And, uh, but to stay in that place is an incredible, shows an incredible capacity for the heart of God and the desire for God. No wonder God chose him. God had searched to and fro throughout the earth and found a man whose heart was totally his. Because when your heart belongs to God, you are prepared to go through this kind of stuff. It hurts. It's painful. You have to die to every form of flesh in yourself. And Moses had to do the same thing. His fury and his rage, he was hot with anger. He was hot with anger and fury and rage. And yet he found that place on the inside of him to continually come back to asking God. So we pick it up in, in chapter 33 of, of uh, Exodus, and in verse 12, and we begin to see Moses' intercession to the Lord. And in verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, see, say to me, bring up this people, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways. So this is what it looks like as a leader to intercede before God. We don't have to be afraid to ask God the tough questions. I know I've done that many, many, many times. So has Brahm. As long as you keep the fear of God and the reverence towards God, we can have our face-to-faces with God and say, Lord, you've put this on me. You've given me this job. You've anointed me to be a leader in your body. Now, you need to show me this because I'm not understanding and you need to show me. So here's Moses. This is what intercession is. You're not interceding for your own life. You're interceding on behalf of the people of God. That's what leadership looks like. It's always about the house of God. It's about the people of God. So here's Moses saying, please show me your ways in order that to find favor in your sight. And this is the bit I love. I've got the worst sense of humor when I read the Bible. But he goes, consider too that this nation is your people. Like I can almost hear the sarcasm, like, God, this is actually, these are yours. You've given me this job, but these people, they're your people, God. Sometimes I might be guilty of saying the same thing. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you, 
and I will give you rest. Isn't that amazing? Let's pause on that for one moment and we'll revisit this sometime in the future. The presence equates to rest. The presence of God equates to the rest of God. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I love that. This is the heart of leadership. If you're not prepared to back me up, God, because you've said all that, if you're really not prepared to do it, I'm not going anywhere. We're not moving. Because Moses realized he needed God. He needed his presence. Guys, we need his presence in every single thing, not just in leading churches, in being the church. We are the body of the anointed one. We have to have his presence leading us, otherwise where are we going? And then he goes on to say in verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight? See the emphasis that he's putting on the favour of God? The emphasis, the understanding in this man that he recognised that there was no point in him going forward. I love it. This is the same, the same mentality as Paul, the Apostle Paul. There's nothing in and of myself that I can bring to this leadership table. If I don't have Christ in me, Paul would say, and Moses says, if I, have not found, if I don't have your favor, if I haven't found favor, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? How will it be known that we stand out amongst people, amongst nations? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. So Moses is saying, it's your favor. It's your, there's something about you that has to be on us. It's your going with us that makes us stand out. We're too afraid to be a people, to be a nation. You want us to be a nation. You call us to be a nation. But your presence, where is it? Where's the favor of God? You've just wanted to kill everyone and start again with me. I've just got angry. I've wrecked all the stones that you were handwritten notes from you. And now, I, now we're back to square one. Now what are we going to do? What are we going to do, God? I can't take these people. Remember, these people are your people. You've done this, God. These are your people. You're the one who's established them as a nation. Not me. This was not my idea. But we're here and we're ready, but we need your favor. Because how will we stand out? How will we be seen? It's amazing. Just the passion of leadership. Just the, it's like he drew a line in the sand and said, God, I can't do this without you. You know, Moses already knew. He's like, kind of like Paul. He'd killed an Egyptian, what, 40 years before? Is that right, Bram? Getting my Bible facts right. He's my encyclopedia sitting in the front row here. Thank you very much. Um, and he's cute, a cute encyclopedia. But yeah, he's handy. He comes in very handy as a husband. So, <clears throat> but he tried to kill an Egyptian for coming, or he did kill an Egyptian for, for fighting a, a, one of the Israelis, the Israelites. And of course, then he was, he was discarded and disowned by the, the Israelites because they're like, who do you think you are? You're just, you live in Pharaoh's home in his palace. And so he gets taken off to the wilderness. God does a work in him. And now he comes back and he's leading these people. He's become a shepherd out in the wilderness. He's learned what it is to be, to be formed by God for the, for, the, for the breaking of God, before the commissioning of God, for the fire of God, before the releasing of God. He's gone through that formation that we've talked about over these last few weeks. 
And now here he stands and he's ready and he's like, God, I've already tried this 40 years ago. I tried to step in and protect your people and do that and it didn't go anywhere because it was in my own strength. How am I gonna stand out? How are your people gonna stand out? We have to have you. Remember, he's just seen the miracles. Paul just had a face-to-face with Jesus. Peter met face-to-face with the, with the Holy Spirit. They all know they can't do that without this God literally carrying them and taking them forward into the purposes of God. The, the line has been drawn. There's nothing. There is zero of themselves that these leaders realize that they can bring in. Zero. Big, fat zero. So he's like, I'm not going anywhere until you are with me. He's been stripped of all of his pride. He's been stripped of all of his natural thinking, his natural Sophia that we've been talking about. Now he's like, God, I've done all that. Now, please help me here. Help me. How are we going to go forward? And in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing. See, God loves it when we talk to him like this. We're making a demand on his presence. We're making a demand on his glory. We're making a demand on the very nature of God, which is for his people. And he says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Ah, wow, wow. What a gutsy leader standing in the gap. Come on, God. You've said, these are your people. You've said you'll go with us. You've said you know me. You said I'm your friend. Come on, do this. And then in verse 18, Moses says it again. Please show me your glory. He looks for it again. Now remember, he'd already seen it earlier. So this is something more that he is looking for. As if there's a hunger in him that disregards even the setback of the people's behavior. His heart just wants God. It's like there's a pursuit within Moses, a hunger within him that says there's got to be more. We have to see God. You have to display who you are. You have to make us distinct as a people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, this is the heart of good leadership. This is the spearhead of leadership that God is actually looking for right now. We often think and we hear preachers say, well, the people just have to rise up. No, I believe the leaders have to rise up. I believe it's leadership that has to rise up. And a move of God is dependent on whether people will hunger and just stand in the gap and actually crave for what God craves for, which is for the house of God, which actually is for his people. Moses ached for God's people. He knew that he needed the glory of God to be with them so that they could be established as God's people. And he needed to know God's favour was them for their, was there for them as a nation. Now, as New Testament believers, when we talk about the glory of God, we need to see what the New Testament writers actually say about it. So that's, the, that's a portion of, of the Old Testament, the birthing of the nation of Israel. So let's see what the New Testament writers say about it. One in particular is John, who was called the beloved disciple. The Gospel of John is widely known as the Gospel of the Glory of God. The word glory appears six times in Matthew, three times in Mark, and 11 times in Luke. But in John, in the Gospel of John, it actually appeared 19 times. And it was the last New Testament book to be written. It was written about 90 AD at the end of John's life. And so in a way, you could look at it as a retrospective gospel. 
is the sum understanding of who John's understanding, sorry, of who Jesus really is. It's as if the closest man to ever walk with Jesus got to the end of his life and it's almost like the penny dropped and he went, ah, okay, this is who Jesus is. This is the fullness of who Jesus is. Um, I'm about to quote my son, Ben. I remember him saying, you know, while Matthew, Mark and Luke were updating their Facebook statuses, like a moment-by-moment account of the happenings, John wrote a memoir because he looked back and he saw and he waited to the end of his life as he thought about all that he saw. You know, that's why he didn't start, like I think it's in Matthew where he started with genealogy, but rather with a, a prologue which started with a statement, in the beginning was the word. It's amazing. So this began his memoir of, of, of who he saw Jesus was as he got to the, his ripe old age at the end of his life. And so let's read the prologue of John from John 1, 1 to 14, because I want to anchor this whole principle of the glory of God. So let's start from John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay, let's pause there for a sec. When we look at these verses right there, the verses 1 to 10, we see the language of Genesis in the beginning. So he's basically describing the glory of God. Just as the the glory of God was displayed in Genesis, here too we see a dramatic account of the glory of God unfolding. We see the glory of God in operation through Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. So this is the language of Genesis, the birthing, the glory of God was there for our creation. And then we see, um, let's read on from verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, Sorry, my brain's going too fast for my mouth. My husband often tells me that. Um, Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, let's pause there. Now we see the language of the new birth. And we see the glory and the power of God that is displayed when we're born again at our salvation. When there's actually a spiritual transaction that begins to take place. So he's describing here what happens when the glory of God comes and comes to his people. And so he begins to describe the new creation. And then we come to the the punchline of verse 14 of this particular prologue of John's. And it says here, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here we see the language of Exodus, because it's saying the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, 
This is delivered as the punchline of this whole prologue, as I said. And the word dwelt literally means tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And now we start to see this is presenting the imagery of Exodus, the language of Exodus, where God shook Mount Sinai with his glory. Because when at Mount Sinai, once the law was given and all the details of the tabernacle were given, that's where Moses built the tabernacle, which is called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle of Moses. This was built at Mount Sinai. And we saw the pattern, if you read back over the, those things in Exodus, you see the pattern where the glory would be upon the tabernacle and every time the glory would lift off the tabernacle, that was the sign that Israel had to pick up and move on. Kind of like revival time, okay? We're sensing something's moving on, let's shift, come on, let's follow where God is going. See, God is always pushing his people forward and that, was, that is what would happen. God would come and tabernacle amongst his people, but he didn't just set up shop and stay there. He always moved his people forward and that's what happened. And so he tabernacled with them and... Um, because God is always doing something for a purpose. When you think about where he was taking his people in Exodus, he was taking them to the promised land. He was saying, come on, I want to shift you forward. I want to take you somewhere. I want to take you to a place where you're not even going to believe when you see it because he's always pushing his people forward. So the Exodus imagery at Mount Sinai becomes really clear when we, when we look at the following statement in the verse and it says, and we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So what is John implying here? He's implying that just as Moses saw the glory of God in Sinai, we too saw this glory clothed in the, in the flesh. All right, so let's fast forward now to the epistles. According to Paul in the Old Testament, the uniqueness of Israel as a nation is that the glory of God was among them. They stood out because of that. Remember? We read earlier, Moses said in chapter 33, verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? So this is about all of us, all of them. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? So they stood out because of that. It was to carry the presence. It made them distinct. It's not just about having glory meetings. It's always moving forward in his purposes. But when we come to the New Testament reality... It's presented by Paul as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, not as the glory of God among us, but as Christ in us. As Christ in us. Colossians 1, 26, 27, I read it at the start, I'll read it again. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just among us, but it's within us. This is the glory of God within a person. This made them distinct even from Judaism. It's amazing. So at Mount Sinai, we see the giving of the law by God to Moses at the Feast of Pentecost. The mountain shook, there was smoke that covered the mountain. It was due to the fire from God. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? Absolutely phenomenal. 50 days after Passover, as I said, 
And let's read what happened when the Lord's glory visited Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Woof! And it says in verse, chapter 24, 15, it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt, or tabernacled. He dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Whew. See, it's not just for a purpose, but it becomes apparent. It becomes obvious. When the glory of God is with his people, it becomes evident and obvious to everybody around them. That is the plan of God. That is the purpose of God, is to make his people stand out and be distinct amongst the nations. We see this principle here. All right, now let's come into the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost is when the Jews are actually celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. They're they're celebrating the giving of the law. This is what is happening in Acts chapter 2. They're celebrating when Israel became a nation. But this is a different thing that begins to happen in Acts chapter 2, which we've already covered. The Spirit of God comes. And it became the, the, the point where the people of God, the people that had been waiting in the upper room, that's why Jesus had said to his disciples, you've got to wait. There's a purpose. See, there are times and seasons for everything. God knows the timing and the season. Sometimes we are impatient, but God says, wait, wait for it. See, God knew that they had to wait just another 10 days from when he went up on the cloud, when he was taken up, because he knew that would mark the day of Pentecost. That would mark the feast of Pentecost. That would mark the moment when the Spirit of God would come into and onto mankind. And so what happened was the people were filled with the Spirit of God. He could have done it earlier. He could have done it at any time. But he's the one. The Father is the one who determines the times and the seasons. And this was the timing of God. And as they waited, they didn't, remember, they didn't actually know what they were waiting for. They were blind. They were confused. All they knew is that their Savior had gone. And they're waiting and they're waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, wow, on the day of Pentecost, People are filled with the Spirit of God 50 days after Passover. And this is when the Lord's glory birthed the church. It's exactly the same power as at Mount Sinai. Acts 2 verse 1, when the the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. This was suddenly, this was very sudden. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with, each, with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. The glory of God once again was very evident. It became very obvious on the people of God. This time though, it's not just coming on top of a mountaintop. 
to with one man involved, this is literally coming upon the people of God. Back at the mountaintop, the people of God were not allowed, the people of Israel were not allowed near it. It would have killed them. But it was on the mountaintop and Moses was the one that was allowed to be there. But this time, this is all new. This is all new. This is the, the, the glory of God is now coming not just upon people. He's coming within people. Oh, my gosh. It's coming directly into human beings. All that power, all that shaking, that thunderous noise, that glory of God that was seen by the people of Israel on the mountaintop that then resided on the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of Moses, as it took them towards the promised land. All that glory of God was now funneled directly into the very heart and soul and the spirit of a human being because the cross had already happened. The same power. In, in verse 6 of Acts, of Acts chapter 1, or we go back to verse 4, actually gathering them together, this is before he goes up or before the day of Pentecost, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised. Remember Luke 24, 49 says the same thing, wait in the city till you receive what has been promised by the Father. A promise means it will come, it just means that it's still coming. But it was promised. And he said, and then you will be clothed with power. And he says, wait for what the Father has promised in verse 4, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And what does that word baptized mean? It means to be immersed into. It means to be plunged into. That's what water baptism is. You are immersed into. The the Greek word is baptizo. You are immersed into. You are plunged into. So he's saying you are about to be plunged into the very glory of God, the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Just like that mountain and Moses were plunged into and immersed into the glory of God on the mountaintop, he's saying that's about to come onto you. And then we read in verse 6. I can turn my page. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, so they still don't get it. Remember, it's a mystery that is hidden from ages and generations. Saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So even though he's giving them all these, these hints and he's telling them all this stuff, they still don't get it because they actually don't need to get it with their own Sophia. They don't need to understand it. He's just making declarations. He's speaking it out. He's saying, this is where we're going, guys. This is what is about to happen. And they're still saying, they're scratching their heads going, so are you restoring the, the kingdom to Israel? What's going on here? We, we need to be, feel like we're a nation again. And he says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. See, when the fire of God comes on us, it is uncontainable. There was this incredible manifestation. There was this violent rushing wind, a sound from heaven. It caught everyone's attention. How did it catch everyone's attention? There were tongues of fire, guys, on their heads. Don't you think that would catch everyone's attention? Not only that, but they're speaking in in languages that many of them could understand. They were speaking in languages that they knew these people didn't know, but they understood. 
That's happened to me many times. I've been praying in tongues and someone will say, I recognize Spanish. You know, Chucky recognized me speaking Spanish once when he heard me speaking in tongues. I just flew back yesterday from Sydney where I spoke at a Spanish church and I prayed really loudly into the, into the microphone hoping that someone would say, I understood what you just said. But apparently I didn't do Spanish this time. I was just being loud into the microphone. Um, but it caught everyone's attention. And, uh, you know, if we want to see the glory of God, if we want to see the power of God, we want to see revival come, then we have to expect that something is going to shift and it's going to shift suddenly because that's what happened here. But we also have to learn to wait, like I said. And he says, don't even think you can do this with, without me. Don't even think about this until you have my power. And it's incredible to think that it is this power that went into a human being. No wonder Paul said, to live is Christ. He... These weren't just nice religious sounding words. I think the church in general, the church, we've turned this into, you know, some emotional sort of religious sounding, oh, yes, to live is Christ. No, 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 no. It's not a concept. It's not a methodology. It's not behavior, modification following his ways. It is power. It is him. It is his power on the inside ready to live through us. We are meant to be distinct. It is meant to be obvious that we have his bestowal of divine favor on our lives. Moses said, I need to know that I have your favor. The New Testament tells us we have his favor. We have the bestowal of divine favor because we have the anointed one, Christ within us, the anointed one living on the inside of us. That's who we have. We have his favor, not just leading us like Moses wanted. No, we've got a way better covenant. We've got a way better deal. He's on the inside leading us. We don't need to watch a tent of meeting with the cloud and the fire and we just kind of follow. No, we've got everything of that glory of God on the inside of us. Every moment we wake up, every moment we go to sleep, every living, breathing moment we are awake during the day, we carry the fire and the presence and the cloud of God's glory on the inside of us. That's why Paul said, I don't want to know anything else. God, don't even let me go there. I don't want to know anything of my own wisdom. I just want to know that it's you. I just want to walk in this anointing. Guys, when we narrow our lives down to this, he will grab hold of your peculiar giftings that he gave you because you are made in the image of God. He will take all the different giftings that you have, your, your musical abilities, your speaking abilities, your, your, your administrative abilities, your, your teaching abilities, your prophecy, all these things, your seeing abilities. He'll take all the giftings that he's given you and he will, he will put a fire underneath them and he will use them for his glory. But only when we lay down everything and say, God, I only want it to be Christ in me. And then you live from that place out of me. Then we're ready to go. Then we're ready to run. Then we're ready to roll. We are meant to be distinct. I have found favour. Yes, I haven't just found favour. I've got favour. I've had the bestowal of divine favour placed on the inside of me. See, this is why I feel the presence of God so strongly because it's Christ in me. I have the fire of God in me. You have the fire of God in you. I feel him 
Every time I preach the word like this, I can't help but get overwhelmed. I just want to cry, I want to shout, I want to scream, I want to lay hands on you all. I want to burst because this is who we are. In, at Mount Sinai, we see that it's Moses, there's fire, there's darkness, there's a trumpet voice, there's quaking, there's thunder and there's lightning. And this was Old Testament Pentecost. But at Jerusalem or Mount Zion, we have Jesus, tongues of fire, a rushing mighty wind, shaking and conviction. This was New Testament Pentecost. God's people, every generation, has always been birthed and formed in the glory of God. God is a, a multi-generational God. You go right back to Genesis and you see, he said, let us make man in our own image. All other creatures and creation were called out of their own environment. You know, let the earth sprout vegetation. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living things. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. So he spoke to the environments. But God is the environment where mankind was made because he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then God himself breathed into Adam the breath of life. So we see that God's people are always birthed and formed in the glory of God. At Mount Sinai, as we've already spoken about, the glory of God was the very environment where Israel was created as a nation. In Egypt, they were not a nation, and in the wilderness, they became a nation and a kingdom of priests. And like I said before, they became the church in the wilderness. And on the day of Pentecost, we've already read about it, we saw the birthing of the New Testament ecclesia, once again, the people of God where Jew and Greek, two different races, now became a third race, a new race, a new group of people. It's as if God created a new race, his people, his bride. And once again, on the day of Pentecost, the church, his body, his bride, once again were created within the realm of the glory of God. And Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 3 as an ever-increasing glory as opposed to a fading glory of the Old Testament. Do we understand how incredible this is? This is something we go on. That's why the Bible says we go on from glory to glory. All that glory that was unleashed on Mount Sinai is now encapsulated in humanity, in you and I. And then, of course, at the birthing of you and I as new believers, at the new birth, we were born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God, 1 Peter 1.23, a powerful powerful principle that we were born from above by the very essence of God and once again it was the glory of God that we were born again into we might not have felt anything I certainly didn't but after that moment my heart changed something changed on the inside you see we can't separate the glory of God from the Holy Spirit because he dwells among us by his Holy Spirit Paul's expression is Christ in you the anointed one John's expression is the language the anointing in you but it's all the same person. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 John 4.4 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
John 4, 14 says, But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We've got to learn to live out of that life like Paul did. You can't separate, so we've learned that we can't separate the glory of God from the Holy Spirit, and we can't separate the Holy Spirit from the anointing because he is the one who teaches us, the anointing teaches us, the Holy Spirit. Very clearly Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as a person. He will teach us all things and bring to remembrance. And we can't separate the anointing from the glory of God. Christ in you, the anointed one in you, the hope of glory. 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Guys, he's anointed us for a purpose, is to do a job. His anointing is within us, and his anointing is upon us, so that we will be distinct as God's people. I'm going to ask the music team to come up now. You know, when the, on the day of Pentecost, when the presence of God came into human beings, remember? It came upon them, but it also came within them. Not only were there tongues of fire, not only was there incredible boldness on Peter, on the people as they began to preach and teach the word of God, but they began to speak in other languages. And they began to preach, to say things in other tongues, in other languages. This is one of the signs of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said, you will be baptized into the Holy Spirit. And one of the very evident signs, what people could see and also hear, and you see that phrase regularly in the book of Acts, what they saw and what they heard. They heard people speaking in tongues. And so this is one of the signs of us being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I want us to, let's, let's all stand now and I'm going to ask us to sing something. I love your presence. Yeah, that would be good. I'm standing in love. I'm standing in love. I love your presence. I'm standing in love, but I love your presence. All right. So this is what we're going to do. I, I want us to pray for people. I want us to begin to pray that the glory of God will consume our own hearts and our own lives. But I also want to pray for people who want to be baptized into the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never received, maybe you've never... Um, you've never actually come into that place of being absolutely drenched by the power of God of being really saturated and been immersed into or plunged into the presence of God I want us to pray for you today but I also want the rest of us to really begin to activate the very glory of God that is within us so if you've never prayed in tongues I want you to come up the front now I'm going to pray for you to, be, to begin to pray in the Holy Spirit and for the rest of us, I'd like us just to begin to pray in the Spirit, to just begin to generate and to begin to allow the glory of God that is within to begin to explode through us. Let's just begin to pray in the Holy Spirit. Let's all of us just begin to generate what God has placed within us, the glory of God. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, you've never, you've never prayed in the Spirit, I want you to come forward. I want you to come now. And I'm going to pray for you so that you can pray in tongues, so that you get a release praying in the spirit if that's you let's just let's just